And I think in the busyness of being a modern pastor and even being a modern Christian, we can be so busy going about all the different things we need to do, like preparing sermons and all this sort of stuff, mm. that um, I think we do well to just slow down a bit and pause and, and remember that we're doing this with Jesus for him. Welcome back to The Shock Absorber. It is exceptional to have you along with us. My name is Joel and here I am joined by two exceptional people, Tim and Stu. As always, uh, we are wearing exactly the same thing as last episode. It's very coordinated of us. <laughs> yes. Thank you for arranging that. Uh, no, we just recorded our episodes back to back. Uh, how are you guys? We've just finished recording episode eight. Now we're good. recording episode nine. Yeah, I've been over the last ten minutes. I've been fine. Thanks, Joel. It's been good. Because yeah. <laughs> well, when we weren't recording. Yeah, those, those ten minutes, the gap in between. <laughs> I really enjoyed the last episode. It was really yes, good. As, as did I. Um, and the reason we're recording a couple of back to back episodes is because you're off to America. I am tomorrow, off to America tomorrow, which yes. is very exciting. Yeah. I hope you have a good time. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to Tombstone. <laughs> Okay, you have said that so many times. I'm excited. <laughs> That's great. Where is Tombstone? Arizona. Arizona. Southern Arizona. But you're starting in Chicago, is yes. that right? And are you driving down? No, flying to San Fran and then going on an epic American road trip. Around Including Phoenix, Route 66. Really? Okay. Mm. That's coming cool. Good. Right. Um, and why is Tombstone so important? Because because of the ERPs and Doc Holiday oh. and the gunfight at the OK Corral. <laughs> I find really Yeah, those really guys, interesting. Eh? Yeah, yeah. Have you okay. ever heard of that? Uh, I've, I've heard you talk about it. 1990s <laughs> movie with starring Val Kilmer as oh, really? Doc Holiday and can't remember who was White Earp. He was famous as well. Anyway. Oh, okay. Well, we'll look it up as we talk. But uh, it's, it's good that you brought that up because uh, you actually had a, a story or a cultural artifact that related to what we're talking about today, well, which is keeping momentum. Yeah. Well, you, you, you wanted to call this episode the Big Mo. And so my first thought was <laughs> 19th century moustaches. Because if you've, if anybody's ever looked up on Google, uh, cowboy moustaches, say moustaches. <laughs> yeah. If we, yeah, I don't moustaches. know. Moustaches. Yeah. Moustaches. Yep. You will see that there's some quite, um, grand, elegant examples of, uh, moustaches from that era. Mm. And, my uh, interest in Tombstone is in White Earp, Virgil Morgan and Doc Holliday and Virgil Earp particularly had a killer mo. He had a big mo and so did uh, White Earp and yeah, do yourself a favour. Look up the movie Tombstone from the 1990s, great movie. <laughs> okay, what is your, where do you think you get your interest for Westerns from? I have no idea. It's interesting, isn't it? I, oh, actually, I'll tell you what, I think I do know because when I was young, we used to, in the school holidays, have the midday movie on TV. This was before Netflix and you could watch whatever you want. So you used to have to wait with bated breath to see what movie would come on um, or you just read the TV times and find out. But mm. as a little kid, I used to just sit there in front of the TV with my brother waiting to see what the midday movie was and I always loved it when there was a cowboy movie. So I think that's probably where I get it from when I was really, really little. Yeah, Because I feel like... I've only really learned this about you in the last few years. You're into Westerns that yeah. much. Is that because you can watch more of them because of the internet? Uh, maybe. I think um, I, I, I really like history in general and I mm. range around different historical periods and I focus on different things at different times. And at the moment I'm spending a bit of time looking at Native American history and the Wild West and I'm really interested in that period at the moment. Mm. Um, yeah, I also had an uncle, my uncle John, used to love John Wayne movies and he used to watch them with me and I've been missing him more a bit lately mm -hmm. so i think it's also just his memory that's caused me to start mm. looking into it a bit more okay. but i'm also really interested in the cinematography and the 
things we can learn about uh, the time of the, the those movies were made, particularly 50s and 60s America with the origin myths that uh, were created at that period of time. Really interested in the sociological era mm-hmm. of that and um, how it changed over time. So as many of our viewers will, and listeners will know, I'm really interested in the 60s. So that means that I'm naturally interested in what happened before the 60s and what changed. So that medium of the Western is a really good lens to view 1950s America through. So I find that helpful sociologically too. Right. Uh, Kurt Russell was oh, of white. Was. Uh, yeah, he did a great job. Yeah. I have not seen the movie though. Um, Tim, do you want to let us know of your favourite moustache of all time? <laughs> favourite moustache <laughs> of all time? Um, I, I can't think of one. Um that stands out to me particularly. Um, no, Ned That's Kelly good. had a cracker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there are some good ones, but I, there's, I don't. Yeah, it's not one on top of my mind. Of you wouldn't like describe top five as a fan of Ned Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> I had a history professor who was a Ned Kelly specialist. Mm, um, really? So he would, no matter what we were learning, somehow it always related to Ned Kelly. Um, I just so. Did he end up putting too. just putting a bin on his head? <laughs> no, no, he, he didn't. He didn't do that. No. no For those who don't know, Ned Kelly made his own armor. Yes, it was a serious helmet. Ned it Kelly was serious. It? Yeah, it's yeah. incredibly heavy. Imagine how heavy it would be. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Doesn't lend yourself to being very quick and agile around robbing. Well, uh, no, stagecoaches, quick uh, speed was not the um, the driving factor there. It was more about protection. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. so he didn't get shot. That's right, yeah, right. which he did anyway. So it was He did, yeah. but it didn't kill him. His arm is still in See? the jail down in Melbourne, I yeah, think. You can visit it. it. Yeah. Oh. Okay, cool. <laughs> His arm. Yep. Anyway, cool. Uh, thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> Here's an opening statement for your reaction. And I got this from Breakout Churches, which is, again, the book that we have been engaging with across this season. There is no such thing as a plateaued church. A church is either growing or declining. Stu, your reaction. Please. Yes and no. <laughs> uh, I think that I, I think actually this might be a bit controversial <gasps> that that I think even in decline there's ups and downs, and even in growth there's ups and downs, and in plateau there's ups and downs. Mm-hmm. But I do think generally that once a church starts to uh, plateau particularly if you take the attendances of a church and then you add the giving of a church and you put those two things together, you get a pretty good idea of uh, whether a church is in decline, plateauing or growing. And yeah, I think once a church stops moving forward and becomes sedentary, then a very real danger is that it might begin to decline after a period of sedentary plateauing. Hmm. Okay. Tim, what do you think? Yeah, I was thinking, I mean, we often talk about these in terms of, I guess, raw numbers. Um, we think about, yeah, we think about attendance, we think about um, dollars in the plate. Um, and I think what's missed sometimes there is that these are actual individuals um, and what we're interested in, yeah, Jesus has the parable about the, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, and it's his care for the actual individual. Um, and what might happen in, in a plateau in church, um, or you, you kind of look at your finances over 10 years, you look at your attendance over 10 years, and nothing much has changed um, in terms of baseline numbers. And you go, oh, well, maybe we're in plateau. Um, but what I'd be really interested in is, well, what, what's the actual stories, though? Like, is, 
Is it the same people who have been there for 10 years? Um, very unlikely. Actually, probably more likely is you've had people leave. You just happen to have had the same number of people attend uh, and join. And what does that mean in terms of um, your plateauing? Is, uh, and I think yeah, what the gospel drives us towards is a care for the individuals. You know, the, the parable of the lost shepherd, he doesn't go off and just find a random sheep. He goes and finds the sheep, the one that has been lost. There's a particularity about it. Um, and the other thing that's noticeable across, um, certainly in um, suburban Sydney, like ours and other places that would be similar makeup, is there's lots of options for churches. Uh, and often what happens is churches grow or decline by people just bouncing around different mm. churches. And so what is interesting is to see, oh, well, this church, oh, it's growing. Um, but then you look at the four churches that are around it and they've all shrunk. Um, and so is, you know, is there a net gain in the number of believing people who have trusted the Lord Jesus in this particular area? Um, the answer might be, well, no, there's not actually a net gain in the kingdom in that area. You've just had people who are shuffling around you know, different sheep and different sheep pens kind of thing. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, we can often uh, think, oh, I'm growing, I'm declining, I'm plateauing, but without actually looking for the individual story. So I'm, I'd be interested in knowing, okay, well, if people have left, why is that? What, what went on for them? Have they, did they leave us to go to another church? Um, was that a good thing? Was it a bad thing? You know, what, what, try and dig into some of those data rather than just looking at raw numbers mm. yeah. i also think too i just want to say i think the church is incredibly resilient so i think sometimes we put a bit of pressure on ourselves are we declining growing plateauing and we are going to talk about that today because it is good to do everything humanly possible we can under god to do our ministries and mm. be aware of different dynamics but i just love it that the church is resilient and that christ is building his church and i just mm. want to say at the outset today that no matter where your particular church might be on some kind of continuum i think at the end of the day your church is eternally safe and that we are part of um, the glorious work of jesus that uh, yeah I, I just think it's great to I, i've been in both well, all three kinds of churches i've been in a church that was declining i've been in churches that have plateaued i've been in churches that have building momentum but at the end of the day the same joy exists in all of those different contexts so i think it is good to put our minds to this question today but i also just want to encourage us all not to um uh to forget that amazing wonderful thing that we're a part of uh, the people of God. Mm. I think it's worthwhile, very much worthwhile remembering mm. um, and being reminded of, I think, regularly too, which mm. helps us to be more thankful. I was just wondering though, in particular, in your particular roles, whether it's uh, Stu as a senior pastor here, Tim, you've got a, a week job and also working for Soul Revival Church. In your particular role, what would momentum look like? What, how would you know that you are seeing the big, the big mo? Yeah, I think it starts with the personal growth of the people in the church. I think that's um, really important. I think to see people maturing in Christ using the Bible is really important. And um, there are times where where we go through seasons as churches and actually in our culture generally today, in, in our part of the world, in Sydney, there is a, uh, a cultural moment that to all intents and purposes – uh, looking at figures, um, does seem that less Australians are self-identifying as Christians than have in the past. But I think 
I think the real growth of individual Christians in the midst of churches all over Sydney is really exciting for me. So mm. I think it starts with that. And then the the second part of that is that when, when uh, Christians are growing and thriving, then they get excited about following Jesus and their joy is uh, something that just bubbles out of them to other people. So evangelism actually springs out of uh, a thankfulness that people have uh, of what God's doing in their life and they want to share that with others. So I think I think even though someone described to me once that sometimes the tide goes out for the gospel but it always comes back in again. So even if sometimes we might feel a little despairing of uh, the direction that our culture might be going in or the ch- place of the church within that, I think the exciting thing is that um, God is in his heaven and he's on his throne. Mm. So. Tim, what do you think? What does momentum look like in your particular role? Yeah, as you said, you're looking at the individual believer and thinking about how what does momentum look like for them. Um, and I've mentioned it a few times, um, particularly this season, but one of the challenges in children's ministry is to sort of identify what does spiritual health look like, what mm. does um, Christian discipleship growth look like. Uh, and so trying to identify... You know, what does a thriving, you know, flourishing disciple at five look like mm-hmm. or 10 or 13 or 15? You know, and the, because of the difference in developmental stage um, and what they're able to um, accomplish given who God has created them in that moment to be um, can be a tricky thing to try and work out. Okay, well, is this a flourishing disciple or not? Um, and so, yeah, looking for evidences of... Um, uh, wanting to be at church, wanting to read the Bible, expressing fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and as I said last week, that children are capable of having saving faith and are capable of expressing that in uh, age-appropriate ways. And so, therefore, we should be looking for those things and seeking to foster those things. And one of the things I'm really excited about right at the moment is I'm uh, coaching a children's minister and she's been developing a, a framework and a little um, outline of what a flourishing disciple who was a child, what it looks like, uh, what would we notice as leaders and parents mm. um, as a child who was you know, flourishing in their discipleship. Uh, and therefore, if we're looking for these things and we're seeing them, that's worth celebrating. And then how do we encourage those things? And so what would we actively do as parents and as leaders to encourage them towards that end? So momentum would be seeing that growth. Uh, and then, yes, the flip side to discipleship is mission. That's the other side of the coin. And so, yes, those who are excited about church, they're excited about their faith. Um, they know that they belong and have identity and value in their church. will be inviting their friends to that. Uh, we talk about the things that we are excited about. And so when uh, kids want to invite their friends to church, it's because they're really excited about their church. They love their church um, and they hoping that their friends will find value in their church as well. And so we should see missional growth um, there as well. Does those kind of things that you've described, does that make you excited and get you really fired up for your job? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I love it too. <laughs> That's cool. And well, hopefully we can um, help other leaders to be able to, um, if they're not already, be working towards that. So that's that's really cool. So uh, Tom Rayner in breakout churches, he talks about what's the he's towards the end of the kind of a, a, a process of identifying what is a church that has momentum and what is a church that is perhaps on the decline or plateauing. 
And he said that in their research with the churches they identified as what they call breakout churches, there was everyone within the churches, whether it was staff or members of the church, uh, had difficulty identifying what the one particular factor was. But the fact that they identified the momentum felt that it was slowly building and gradually speeding up. But a lot of people still described it as momentum. It was something was building. Um, even a number of members provided differing answers, so they had a variety of responses. But there often seemed to be a quiet, deliberate process of figuring out what needed to be done and then try, trying to create the future future results. Um, and he described it as there's a it seemed to be a, though a process of struggle, build up, breakthrough which led to momentum. So all these reasons were different, but there was, a, there was a couple of common factors, which is I think is going to hark back to our evangelism episode as well about um, how, we, how momentum actually occurs. And this is something that Rainer talks about a lot kind of later is that there's very much a spiritual link, that God is actually in charge of momentum and we just need to, as we've said, partner with God in expressing that. Mm. So number one factor that was very common was long-term approach. And this is something that we've talked about a lot. But Rainer reminds us that the average tenure of the breakout churches that he researched and his team researched was that uh, the pastor was there for 21.6 years. That's fascinating, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, um, six times the average for an American pastor at the time we did this research. Um, they've had to lead through difficult times, see growth. And I think... That's how like we would like to describe our approach to leadership here at Soul Revival Church. But we like to call it long team, long term, low key, and relational. Um, even those things you were talking about, trying to identify those markers, seem very relational, Tim. That we we would usually we've we've talked about how there's a difference between uh, breakout churches, which is based on a, a book called Good to Great by Jim Collins, which is about companies. And we talked a few episodes ago how Jesus actually inverts a lot of the things that we're talking about how does those kind of things like why, why do we want to be relational here at Soul Revival to identify those factors Stu? yeah well again it comes back to what we talked about last episode about preaching the gospel and sharing our lives with one another and we mentioned it Paul in uh, Thessalonians talks about that then he says didn't I uh, preach the gospel and share my life with you and I think that what that does is that the the gospel is formative and it forms us and discipleship takes place over time and our sanctification as an individual Christian takes time. Uh, we don't instantly become holy as soon as we become a Christian, but we grow and God is really gracious with us and kind to us and he helps us to grow through all sorts of struggles and uh, different failings of ours. And so when we have a group of Christians who walk together, long-term together, then that seems to benefit the individuals and the group because having a leader that sticks around and is not transient moving on every few years can be a positive for people to to grow as a disciple. So an example for me is that when I was younger in the 80s, it was quite common that we'd have youth leaders who do a couple of years leading the youth group and then they'd move on. Uh, in fact, one of our youth, and often they they were awesome youth leaders and they often really loved us. Um, but there was one youth leader who said to us once, well, I've done my bit now. Now it's some, someone else's turn to run the youth group. And I remember thinking, uh, not maybe consciously, but <clears throat> each time I had new leaders, I was excited to get to know them and and learn from them and, and grow in a uh, you know, relationship with them as brothers and sisters. 
But then, then I realised that they moved on so quickly that by the time I got to know them, they moved on. And so there is a good thing about ministers moving on and moving around, but because our assistant ministers and our youth ministers moved on, so the volunteers did too. And it was almost like every time a new minister came, we'd get a new set of youth leaders. And so there was kind of like this start-stop uh, rhythm to my discipleship growing up. And I remember as a young leader thinking, if I'm going to run the youth group, I think it would be really good if I was a bit more consistent. And if we, my wife and I, um, you know, we talked about it and we thought if we commit to this local church and this group of people and just step out in faith and offer ourselves in service to the Lord, it might be interesting to see what grows out of that. And the long-term relationships mean, I think, deeper discipleship. Um, I had a mentor early on in my ministry called Dudley Ford, who was a bishop, um, and then he was retired by the time I uh, got to know Dudley, and he was one of my mentors and elders. And he said to me once something really interesting. He said, Stuart, it takes a Christian five years to get to know another Christian uh, before they really start um, being able to trust each other to talk about the harder things. And his fear is that, his fear was actually, and this is a long time ago, this is back in the 90s, he said, Sydney's so transient that he said to me, uh, and this may be true where, where our listeners are if it's outside of Sydney, but in a big city like Sydney, he said that the average, even back in the 1990s, was that people would move house every five years on average and that every time Christians moved house, they'd tend to go to a new church. So his fear was that we were developing this superficial discipleship through transience because we weren't actually getting to know each other long enough to trust each other to really bear one another's burdens and and um, really do the one another passages with each other. So I found that quite convicting when I was younger. And here we are 30 years later and I'm still ministering to the same community that I was back then, although in a different place now. Uh, I really think there's a lot of value to being being there for people and just being a good brother to my brothers and sisters, um, trying to be anyway. I think mm. that's what I think, yeah. I mean, there's a certain, uh, what's the right word, like, I feel like I know that you're, <laughs> as our senior pastor, and I've known you for a long time, yeah. like, I don't feel like you're going anywhere. And no. I think that provides... Well, unless, unless you guys say it's time for me to move on or yeah, God calls me to something but different. I, but I, I mean more in your... It's obvious in your demeanour that you're not looking for somewhere else. Like, no, this is this no. is what you're committed no, I'm to. I'm happy. Yeah, I'm happy to serve yeah. Jesus here. Yeah. But I think that uh, perhaps in contrast to what you're talking about really provides uh, a platform to develop those relation, long-term relationships mm. amongst the congregation. So yeah. if you've seen your leaders move on, it was kind of like the superficial mm. relationship. We don't, we can't, act, do we actually need to do this? Whereas it's important that our, I think our leaders are trying to show that long-term is a good thing and that we go through the ups and downs mm. together. And I think that's really important. And people can opt in or opt out of it. That's yeah. important. Um, and also there's a challenge to make sure that everybody who comes for the first time at Soul Revival, it's just as much their church as it is people who've been around for 30 years. So mm. we keep seeking to incorporate people into the community and raise them up in leadership. Um, 50% of our church has come in the last five years. So it's really important that we've developed a Berea training program that gives people pathways into ministry mm. Mm. at Soul Revival. And it's quite deliberate in 
making sure that we give new people an opportunity to become leaders in our church as well and so that we don't just become led by the people who were there at the beginning. And uh, so churches need to think about that as well. But, yeah, I think overall the the, the impulse towards long-term ministry is, I think, in general a good thing. Not to say there aren't shadows of that, but it's I think it's a good thing. In our particular context, Tim, uh, we've talked about how there's sometimes there is a bit of transience in leadership. What... Um, what do you think that we could perhaps change around that to, to encourage a little bit more long-term leadership and provide that kind of, I think uh, the, the, the way that I keep thinking about it is stability to form deeper, yeah. for, deeper form relationships. What do you think? Yeah, one of the concepts I uh, teach on when I took, teach on intergenerational ministry is the difference between a family and a pseudo-community. Um, and I've taken this idea from um, uh, Diana Garland, who has written a book on family ministry. But she talks about uh, the idea of a pseudo-community is where uh, my interests and lifestyle rub shoulders with yours, but no real community is formed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think uh, the two come to mind is... Um, you know, bands, like going to see a band, um, or for you, Joel, going to see a sporting match. So <laughs> you, you, go, you go to see um, a Sydney FC game uh, and you're surrounded by people in the same colours as you. You're all cheering on the same team. You have your interests and lifestyle uh, exactly like everyone else in this stand. You just you get really excited. You're all on the same team. Um, you don't care the slightest for anyone else in that stadium. Like you have no actual value, uh, relational value with that person. And as soon as this match is over, uh, you'll all scatter. Um, and the person in front of you, you don't care their name, you don't know them. The person behind you, the person next to you, maybe you get really excited. Maybe it's like the, it's the best match of the entire season and you win the grand final. You might turn around, you might find yourself hugging and getting excited and maybe even shouting a beer for the person who's next to you. Uh, but that's it. Like you, know, you, you have no intention of having a long-term relationship with these people. It's just that they happen to have the same interests and values of you and have happened to be here at the same place at the same time. Um, the reason I think this is really powerful is because I think that's how we think churches work a lot of the time, that I have a spiritual value, um, that I have an interest in growing in, as a disciple of Jesus, uh, and, oh, here's a place where I feel comfortable. I go there, and there's a whole lot of other people there who have the same interests, lifestyle, and we happen to rub shoulders with each other. And so we create this pseudo community of people who are all kind of interested in this Jesus fella, who all enjoy the Bible, who all want to grow as disciples of Jesus. But there isn't that doesn't necessitate that I'm actually going to dig deep relationally with these people. Um, and so if you're a you know a Sydney FC fan, which is a local um, well one of the you know um, Premier Soccer Leagues in Sydney, uh, you might go to their matches and you might notice that the crowd size is growing and you get really excited. You might notice that the crowd size is shrinking and you get a bit sad. Oh, I wish more people were into this Sydney FC thing. But you don't really necessarily care for the individuals around you. It's just you're noticing these raw numbers. And it can be the same at church. We can notice our church growing and we go, oh, it's really exciting. I really like that there's momentum in this church. Um, or you can notice your church shrinking and you can go, oh, it's a bit sad. I feel really sad that less people are connecting and finding value in this place like I am still finding value in this place. Uh, but if we don't have that relational connection, if we weren't actually invested in that long-term, low-key relational discipleship with the other people, uh, then it is just 
this pseudo community of people who were kind of like-minded, but I never dug deep with. Um, and it does take time to do that. And so how do we foster uh, longevity? Um, I mean, I'm sure that there's structural things about, um, you know, commitments and people, you know, uh, seeing themselves valuing longevity in roles and those kinds of things. But it also takes a significant shift for everyone in the room to say, I'm intentionally investing in this group of people for the long term. And it's not a pseudo community. It is actually family. It's actually church. It is friendship, deep abiding friendship where I'm actually going to put myself out for the other people. I'm going to give myself margin to love them and care for them. Um, and it also makes a big difference on size. And this is the other factor. And I don't know what um, Rain has found in terms of size of churches. Um, but imagine you're in a church of 200 people. Uh, then that's 199 people who are not you. <laughs> um, how long does it take to form a relationship with someone else? Maybe a, a decent half hour, an hour conversation. Let's say you go for yourself half an hour with every one of those people um, after church. If, if, you, if you've got 199 other people in that church, that's 199 weeks that it's going to take you to actually get to all of those people. It's going to take you three and a half years <laughs> to have one decent half hour conversation mm with each person at church to get to know them at that level. Mm. And so the, the size of your church makes a difference as well. Um, and I think it's one of the reasons why um, we at Soul Revival have decided that we're going to have a church planting strategy more than a specific congregational growth strategy. I and mean, we said before, we'd rather have four gatherings of 100 than one gathering of 400. And part of it is this relational side of things we actually want to get to know these people we want to have real relationships long-term low-key relational discipleship with each other um and that the, the size that you gather together in will make a big difference into how that works mm. yeah was, i'm sorry i'm just processing everything you said because <laughs> there's a lot of information there um i think that's really good and i think I mean, I, I'm, I personally have benefited a lot from the people that have invested in me over many, many years here at Soul Revival. So it makes a lot of sense what you're saying. Um, the other thing that was uh, two other common factors that um, Raina brings up in breakout churches, uh, and this is where the, I think there is the link with our um, season that we did on evangelism last, last, last season, actually. Um, number one is uh, preaching the gospel. Uh, the churches that showed that they had momentum had a really strong fo focus on uh, faithful and biblical preaching. Um, and it also said, I think this will be an interesting to get your reaction to this, is it says there's a direct correlation between time spent on sermon preparation and evangelistic effectiveness of the church. And I was wondering, how much you guys both preach? How much do you guys spend on sermon preparation? Let me go first, Tim. Um... Pro, I mean, a, a good chunk of the day, like, would go into, and that might be split over many days of, mm. of little pockets of time. Um, but, yeah, probably a day's worth of reading, thinking, writing, crafting it in a way that I think is going to be helpful and applicable. Mm. Um, uh, I want to, you know, I try and um, practice it through a couple of times so that when I do come up to preach it comes across really naturally um, 
So my, my preaching style is I, I think really carefully about the specific words and phrases and sentences. Um, and I, mean, I think that's partly personality, it's partly a lot of children's ministry. You've got to be really clear in your language. You can't just run off the cuff with children because they don't always understand the language. So I think that's kind of just where I've come from. Um, but I also don't, when I come to preach, I want it to sound really natural and to come across fairly conversational and so my writing style reflects that but also if I've practiced it a number of times then I can uh my intent is that I've got my carefully thought through phrasing that comes across as conversational and I I found that's a a healthy like a helpful balance for me Uh, but yeah it does take time Mm. um to to do that well um it's in a little bit, it's the, you know, how long's a piece of string? Like you could spend heaps long reading. There's always an extra commentary you haven't read. <laughs> There's always an extra something else you haven't thought about or, or you know, thing to do, um, an extra application point. Um, so at some point, you've got to realise that uh, there are many parts of a ministry role. Um, and so I wouldn't want to lock myself away for days and days and days um, to produce one 30-minute piece of oratory, um, you know, that uh, – and I think that one of the things that that stops is your actual ability to go and be living in the lives of the people who you're hoping that this affects. So um, – and that's the other side, I suppose, is what's the – you can't really quantify, but all of the time you spend in relationship with people – hearing about their life, what are they struggling with, what are their values, what are they listening to, what are the things that they care about, um, and letting that inform your preparation. I mean, that's we don't normally think about that as sermon prep, but it is in the sense that you're actually speaking a word that is relevant and applicable and directly speaks to the hearts and minds of the people who are directly in front of you. So there's, there's, there's a few random thoughts, but Stu? Yeah, I spend eight hours thereabouts on a sermon. Uh, when I was younger, I used to take a little bit longer, but uh, I think eight hours is a good amount of time to prepare a sermon. I really love expository preaching, so it takes a lot of uh, thought out out of preparation. If you actually have a calendar prepared at the beginning of the year with your preaching calendar set for the year because you don't have to think what am I going to preach on this week it's um, basically we're in in a series in Romans and we're up to chapter six and I'm going to prepare that Uh, I find that really helpful and Mm. uh, it's a little bit like uh, Steve Jobs apparently used to just wear the same t-shirt and jeans every day so Mm. he didn't have to think about what he was wearing the black turtleneck well, well, was it black turtleneck? Oh, no, the black turtleneck's on stage. Yeah, so. maybe, something like that. But yeah, I, th- I think there's some value to that with preaching too, that if you've already set your program at the beginning of the year, you can just enjoy preparing each each one rather than sitting in your office trying to work out what you're going to preach on each weekend. Mm-hmm. So I think expository preaching is fantastic mm-hmm. and um, that helps with that too. I've um, seen you at work, Stu, <laughs> and <Yes. laughs> a number of times. And uh, I also actually really value your ability to come up with talks on the spot, like not on the spot, but you, there's there's always, but it's not actually on the spot. You've put in so much preparation and work over years and years and years yeah, that yeah, you're able that's to. That's a benefit of long time. Yeah, and yeah. I can see you doing that. I remember when we did the 
Um, remember when we switched to the second lockdown in COVID, we switched to doing, we did a week away online and we, we've talked about week away before is when we usually go away as a church, but we couldn't do that because of um, uh, COVID uh, restrictions. And um, we decided that we were going to, the kids talks were on Jonah. So we just decided we were going to do talks on Jonah and we, we, did. we made a decision maybe a day before we recorded, started mm. recording and you prepared four Bible talks in a very short space of time and then I watched you do it and you've got these different things on your screen and mm. you just go in between and I'm, I'm just very impressed. I'm just encouraging you. That mm. I, th- I love the way that you can do that. Yeah. I think that's really awesome. But yeah, once, once you've spent a lifetime um, thinking mm. and praying about and reading and listening to other people preach mm. on something, then you can collect a... Um, collect a knowledge base it's, yeah. it's kind of like um packing honey around your heart to keep you warm from the cold <laughs> it's i think the word of god is like that mm. it's like honey around your heart to to really um it builds over time mm. it's really lovely yeah i think that's true i've seen how many talks and sermons i've seen you do just imagine that's just me like mm. imagine how many you've done for everyone else so i can see the amount of reps you're getting in <laughs> definitely definitely does, does a lot for that thought of it like that yeah. before yeah. um uh the next thing also that uh, Rainer talks about is prayer. And this is very, um, both what we just talked about then, preaching the gospel, but also very reminiscent uh, of the evangelism season was that all the revivals that we looked at during that season were started by people praying together. Um, and I think that's something that's really uh, important to talk about. And it, <laughs> I was going to ask a question like, how important is prayer? Like, well, that's... <laughs> ten. <laughs> that's ten important. Yeah, yeah, ten out of ten. <laughs> that's pretty important. But um, I'd, I'd love to hear you guys, why, why do you think that is a common factor amongst all the breakout churches that Rain have found? Well, one reason I think is that the Bible instructs us to pray. So yeah. just being faithful if we pray. The other thing is we are involved in a spiritual endeavour and we've just done a series on Ephesians and it was really clear that one of the key themes of Ephesians is that we're in a uh, in a spiritual battle, that we're to put on the armour of God every day and not to live in our own strength but actually live in the strength of that we're given by by the Lord. And I think, um, I think sometimes we, particularly in these kind of contexts where we're thinking about breakout churches or how do we build momentum in churches, I think it is, like we said earlier, it's good to think of everything humanly possible we can think of that's helpful. But at the end of the day, we need to be humble and just know that it's God who's at work in us and just ask him to work through us. And we just turn up and we Mm. just wait and see what he does in our life. And I think if we see it that way, it becomes less stressful because we're actually part of what God is doing in the world rather than asking him to bless what we're wanting to do in the world. So I think prayer actually... Uh, for me personally, it means that I'm swept up into God's great plan for the world rather than um, just hoping he'll bless me mm. in what I'm trying to do. So I think um, I think it's also just a really awesome relationship we have. You know, I mean, I was only reflecting the other week that Jesus is the first religious leader in history to call God Father. And then he invites us to have the same privilege to call God Father. It's just incredible. It's wonderful and to think that we can talk to our heavenly father and he listens and it's it's a wonderful privilege i I think sometimes christians i'm a bit worried we're losing 
our prayerfulness actually uh, as Christians sometimes in Australia. Like we've become so materialistic in Australia that we see things through the lens of materialism and all the material things we have seem to be from the work of our hands. And I think I think we need to really start rediscovering some of those Christian disciplines again of, of not only spontaneous prayer but also some structured prayer as well in our lives to help us to really remember that we're safe in in uh, in in the arms of God. Yeah, yeah, I think that's really helpful, Tim. Anything on prayer? Yeah, I think one of the things we noticed in the um, revivals series that we talked about was uh, God. God loves to act uh, through our dependence. Um, he doesn't have to, um, and I, you know, I can look back and see ways that He's blessed me even when I never asked for it um, and just realise that he's good all the time and he can do amazing things yeah. um, even when we're not being prayerful. But one of the things, he just he loves to act through our dependence. And so um, when we do pray, when we do express our dependence, when we do express our humility, as she said, and we come to him and say, Lord, we really need you. Like we need you to be acting. Um, part of what that does is it shapes our heart uh, it shapes our faithfulness um, and it helps us to be more obedient to his commands. Uh, and it also, um, just as we're doing that, just asking God to do what he will do, um, just, it, yeah, he, he just, in, he enjoys working through that. And I think, yeah, and that's what Paul talks about a lot, that, you know, when he is weak, God is strong. Um I was uh, sharing with a few um, SRE coordinators recently that, you know, Paul, when he writes Philippians, is sitting there in jail um, and there's very little humanly possible that Paul can do to do what he loves to do, which is to go around and preach the word of God and to plant churches and to equip the churches. Um, He's chained, he's limited, uh, he has very little options available to him. Um, but he hasn't lost his joy and he hasn't lost his prayerfulness and he's praying all the way through, often in thankfulness, for how good the Philippians have been and how good God is and God will just continue to work. Um, and him being limited in, and in jail and chained, um, he doesn't see that as a detriment. He just sees that as a great moment of God continuing to work because yeah, he's got this great dependence. And prayer is a ministry and it's it's right. free it doesn't cost anything <laughs> yeah that's which good is pretty exciting and mm. it's something we can take great joy in we can enjoy it i think we've lost the enjoyment of prayer i think we sometimes see it as a duty that we should do it and we mm. feel guilty when we don't but i think we should really enjoy praying uh and just today uh i've been praying for one of my brothers in papua new guinea Henga Bear, who's the president of the ecpng the evangelical church of papua new guinea I've been praying for him for two years during COVID and I haven't been able to see him or uh, work in ministry with him for two years. But we've been praying for him and Benessi as they lead the church in Papua New Guinea. They have 70,000 members right across the whole country. It's an Indigenous church and it's evangelical. Uh, and yet, you know, we've been regularly praying for Benessi and Hengebe and regularly one of our wardens, Hayden, prays regularly for, for Benessi and Hengebe. And I've been praying for them and I've been thinking... It's not that the least I can do is pray for them. Is I can pray for them while I can't see them. Yeah. I, th- I think that's a really important way of seeing it. Anyway, during the podcast this morning, the first one we were we were doing, Hanger Bear rang me for the first time in two years, and and um, I was so excited that when I talked to him, he's like, "Brother, it's it's time for us to get back together again. Can you come up to Papua New Guinea next year to speak at a youth convention in Lay?" And I'm like, "Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah, it'd be great to reconnect." So I think prayer is is a 
you know, I've been praying for the opportunity to connect with Henga Bear through COVID and God has answered that prayer, but that's taken a couple of years to answer that prayer. Um, And he may not have got in contact with me and I could have kept praying for him. So I, I think that's a real joyful part of being a Christian leader. And in the Anglican church, we don't get a wage. We get what's called a stipend. And the difference between a stipend and a wage is a wage pays you to do a particular job, but a stipend sets you aside so that you can read and pray. And I often think of my vows that I've made to become a a minister in the Anglican Church and I vowed to pray for and read the Bible and pray for the congregation that I lead. And I think in the busyness of being a modern pastor and even being a modern Christian, we can be so busy going about all the different things we need to do, like preparing sermons and all this sort of stuff, Mm. that um, I think we do well to just slow down a bit and pause and, and remember that we're doing this with Jesus for him. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, and it makes sense that uh, Rainer also says that the big mo cannot be sustained by just sticking to methods. Uh, overall else is the strong spiritual link that God and God is in charge. And I think that, that was something really helpful to remember. But he also goes on to say that churches are, are really just, he just categorizes them into one of three stages. He says they've either got the big momentum, one success builds on another, things are going, feel like they're going strength to strength, it's going really well. The, there are some um, churches that are making steady progress and they're headed towards the big momentum. And then his third category is they're, either, they're in decline and, and erosion. And he says that basically eight out of ten American churches are in that scenario, which is quite... Whether it's true or not, it's quite damning. It's quite an aggressive turn of phrase. And he actually uses the word blind erosion. And I think think he takes a bit of license in terms of like, I'm frustrated about this. Like he's like, I'm a Christian. I really want to see churches be changing in order to um, keep keep seeing growth and keep uh, reaching more people. But... He says that uh, most members uh, perceive that no change is, pl- is taking place and they like it that way. And of the declining churches that they researched, many reported the health as stable. So I think that's where a lot of his language comes from in terms of like, hey guys, you need to wake up. It's not stable. The church is actually declining for a variety of reasons. And um, you, you need to change this lack of awareness basically um the numbers and the and the another reason that he said that was the numbers would tell a different story not stable that's like basically he felt that uh the churches were moving towards a certain death and in one church an example he said that the attendance had declined 62 percent across seven years but there were still people within that church thinking oh it's all stable it's all okay so then he starts to talk about a couple of reasons why that might be. And one of them is accountability. And I think you actually brought this up last episode, Stu, about knowing that information in terms of not the only indicator of growth or decline is attendance and also mm-hmm. uh, how, much, how much money people are giving. And he said that it's really important to be able to provide that information to the congregation to know what's going on so they're aware and not being confused or like, oh, yeah, we're fine, everything's stable. Um Sorrow Revival Church, we, we have a Sorrow Revival Council, uh, which we have every month, and that we actually update everyone who comes into the how mm. we're going in terms of members. Uh, we've done that from the start, basically, and your wife, Stu, is, uh, your wife, Lou, Stu, mm. <laughs> has, been, has been really um, uh, a key, key part of that and has been mm. uh, on the welcoming team for a very long time. Did we start from the very beginning saying this, we need to be talking about this stuff regularly? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm going to preface what I'm going to say by saying that um, 
in Ephesians 6, I was mentioning that before, Ephesians 6, uh, Paul talks in verse 13 about, therefore put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. And so sometimes our churches are in what Paul calls the evil day or a day of challenge. Um, if we would go back to the first century when churches were being persecuted, I don't think they would have been considering the big mo to be how many cars they had in the car park and how many people were coming to the services. Uh, I think Turkish Christians, you know, in, in Asia Minor who were meeting together secretly in caves, that was the big mo. Like they were standing, yeah. they were standing. <laughs> so I, I just want to say that, like, it's easy for us to, like you said, to associate financial and numerical growth with with momentum. Momentum is spiritual, and it's important that we are serving God in our place. Now, right around the world today, there are Christians who are under persecution. I mean, Brother Andrew from Open Doors, who set up Open Doors, he passed away in September. Uh, his his view was, I want to get Bibles to Christians in communist countries in the cold war to help them to stand so i want to help those who remain to stay so i think that's momentum as well that we stand having said that the idea is that as christians we seek to move forward from wherever we are and if moving forward is just waiting on god praying surviving in a certain context and trying to help as many people as we can then that's that's momentum but then I think I think sometimes I think what Rain is getting at is that we can think that sometimes because we're running church as an event that we we're, we're um, achieving all righteousness, and I think it's a good thing for us to have that accountability to go. Are we just turning up and going through the motions, mm-hmm. and you know, or have we actually been placed in a place and time where God has given us certain resources and certain opportunities? that we may not be using. Yeah, sure, there may be uh, a demographic change in our area and a whole heap of people have moved out and it's going to take our church a little while to work out how to change in that context and it might even take a generation for that to take place. So right now in that demographic change, it might feel like we've plateaued or we're in decline, but we're standing. We're going to keep preaching the gospel in that context until we do it. But I think what Rainer might be getting at is that is there a church in a context where there are abundant resources and abundant opportunity that we're not taking advantage of? And I think in Sydney we can sometimes be um, sometimes we can be wanting to go to church and tick the box to go to church and not necessarily seeing the opportunity around us. So that I think it is a good occasion to have accountability. So we had a uh, a preacher from Africa come from Nairobi once to our church and he said you people are too rich you don't need to eat three meals a day and I said to my friend from Nairobi yes I do I need to eat three <laughs> meals a day I like eating three he said you don't you don't need that much you can save the money that you have on your 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 lunch or your breakfast and you can put it in the plate and use it for the kingdom now I got really convicted by that I thought that was a really good thing and he said the problem in Sydney is you guys are so rich we pray for you in Africa that God will help you uh, in your spiritual poverty because of your material prosperity that you might see what's really important and I thought isn't that fascinating like we we would pray in Sydney for other Christians around the world uh, that they would be strengthened in their uh, in their context sometimes which is poverty but to have brothers and sisters in Africa feeling sorry for us that we're so rich mm. and <laughs> that we're missing out so much. And I think that's where Rainer might be coming from. It's good to have accountability from people like 
outside of your context. Uh, I remember John Piper wrote something years ago that I read that he said something like, you should get friends with dead Christians, I think something like that. And it, was a bit, it was a bit of a clickbait sort of phrase, but it was the idea, I think, was read Christians outside of your generation and mm. see what was important to them. Read Christians who are going through persecution. Read stories that they tell what it was like to be a Christian under those circumstances so that I might reflect on my world a bit differently. So that Because I think if I just live in a bubble and everyone's as rich as me or has all the same resources as me, then you, you can compare yourself to people who are richer than yourself and think you don't have much and you think you actually need to get more material possessions. But to actually speak to someone who has less from Nairobi, who comes in and feels sorry for you that you have so many things, that's really helpful. Mm-hmm. And an important part of being part of the whole church like that's the reason that we were part of the yeah, church is that other right. people would call us to account yeah, in that, in yeah. that sense, and that's why it? we like that intergenerational context too mm. isn't it because mm. if if you're good friends with elders who are close to heaven whose bodies are not able to run and play sport anymore or are not fit enough to stay up late or uh, not fit enough to work anymore but are still delighting in the lord there's a real richness in that relationship that you can't get from people who are just the same age as you for example yeah and, and as tim said the children teach us so much yeah um yeah anyway yeah and, that, and i think that's an outworking of the long-term relationship mm, as well that, that you have the ability point. to have those conversations yeah, um another reason that Raina tim talks about is uh, almost an ignorance um of around what's actually going on there's almost a uh, these are all his Admittedly, as we said, tough observations of what he's seen in the churches. Um, there's a little desire to be on mission, for example, um, from the people within the church, and they they don't even perhaps know what their church is doing and even why they attend that particular church. Um, when apparently, when he asked a lot of when they their research team asked a lot of people about the attendances, the those answers often estimated the attendance to be 30% higher than they actually were, which I thought was rather interesting. But I do wonder is that... No, we, we talk about this a lot, though, I think, but how do we help our congregations stay engaged? I think, like, we talked about, like, you've also talked about your sermon, your sermon preparation, and I want, you would say you want to be engaging. You want to engage people in the sermon so they engage with the gospel. What are the other things that we can say? Hey, let's let's stay engaged with what's going on in church, and not just turn up one hour per week, and then I go go out and I, then I just worry about all my materialistic opportunities. Well, partly is cre- creating that culture of church that explains that this church is not an hour a week. That's uh, if that's how you communicate what church is, and you make church convenient, <coughs> and you make church easily accessible. Uh, and you make church easy to uh, drop in and out of um, once a week. I mean, if we had everyone come once a week, that would be amazing. That is not the attendance track of churches in our region. Uh, Regular attendance is if you come uh, every second or third week, you still would consider, and consider yourself when we ask self-perceptions, people say, oh yeah, I'm a regular member of this church. How often do you go? About once every three or four weeks. Um, And so... Yeah, if you if you get an hour, um, uh, an hour every three weeks of biblical content, uh, and then you've got the rest of your time, you're being discipled by your social media feed, the news, uh, the books you're reading, the culture that you're absorbing, the Netflix shows that you're engaged in. Um, which one's going to weigh out? I mean, 
pure numbers, you are going to be more discipled in the worldview of Netflix than you are going to be in the worldview of the Bible if that is how you spend your actual time. Uh, and one of the things I think is really value about um, podcasts uh, and you know, like this one and, and many, many other really rich podcasts is that it gets uh, people thinking about being Christians and what it means to be a Christian that is actually can get into their, onto their phones, into their YouTube feed, into their pockets um, and actually can help to be discipling them right through the week. But thinking about that carefully as um, churches is really key. Um, there's an old kind of maxim that you, know, you, you need to measure what you value or you'll end up valuing what you measure. Um, and basically, if, if we're measuring um, bums on seats and money in the plate, then they're the kind of things we're particularly valuing. Uh, but that's a pretty rough measure and it doesn't necessarily speak a lot to the actual spiritual health of particular people. And that's why I said I'm really excited about this, um, this children's minister I'm working with who's looking at these, what are the other identifiable things that you're actually looking for in children uh, that will actually give you an indication of how they're going as a disciple of Jesus. Uh, but that's, yeah, it forces the question up as well. Like our people in our congregations, what are the measures? Uh, I heard one, um, one pastor reflect when COVID lockdowns first happened uh, and he was bouncing some ideas of another uh, colleague who said, oh, how, how are we going to measure um, discipleship now that we don't have people in the room? Uh, and his response was, well, how are you measuring discipleship before when there were people in the room? Hmm. Um, and the answer was the number of people in the room. <laughs> and that was kind of it. Like, mm. um, and so it sent people into a tailspin off. We don't have people in the room. We can't know how they're going as a disciple of Jesus. Um, and which probably undercut the problem that they weren't really measuring discipleship at all. They were measuring attendance, mm. but they weren't measuring discipleship. Um, and so unless we have good measures for discipleship, then we're actually showing we don't value discipleship. Um, now, to come full circle, uh, even when we look at um, the Sydney Anglican Diocese where we are um, located, uh, even when you do measure those numbers, they're not good. Um, and so there's data that's coming out that we, we are declining as in terms of actual attendance numbers. Um, strangely, uh, giving is way up um, over 20 years, uh, but attendance has dropped. So there's less people giving more. Um, but what does that mean in terms of spiritual health? Well, yeah, there's lot. You need to dig a lot further into individual stories and whatnot. But what are the measures for discipleship you have that you think are better measures than attendance? Yeah, uh, I mean, you're looking for uh, things like you know, are they people displaying fruits of the spirit? Are people engaged in personal discipleship habits? Are people making decisions based on their understanding of scripture? Um, are people do people identify strongly with uh, Christ, you know, their, their in Christness is that a key marker of how they understand themselves to be? Um, I was at a conference recently where one researcher was talking about some high school uh, students in sort of um, sandstone private Anglican colleges uh, and one of the things that she got them to do was to project their story 20 years in the future. What do you think your ideal 20-year future would be? And she got all these students to uh, describe... Um, what their ideal future was uh, and one of the things she picked out from that is very little of what they said about themselves in 20 years time had much to do with Christianity mm, or their faith yeah. or 
even the ones who would now uh, would would say they're Christians, highly engaged in their youth group, highly engaged in their church, um, taking discipleship seriously, but the way that they describe themselves both now and in 20 years' time had very little to do with an identity of being in Christ. Um, and so th- there's there's some of the, the factors that you're thinking about as well. When you hear that, like you're talking about asking those students that, do you think there's a, a widening gap between people's church life and people's outside of church life? I'd say yes and no. I mean, I think one of the reasons we have declining numbers in Sydney is because nominalism is on the decline. I think it was culturally uh, a thing to do to go to church in the 60s and now it's not. So I think what you're left with is people who actually really are Christians who aren't just going to church because there's some kind of cultural cachet they can get out of it. So I don't worry too much about declining numbers in that regard. I think that in some ways we're left with churches of Christians who are have been pruned, I suppose, ready for new growth. And I think, but we need to expect the new growth and not uh, continue just to expect future pruning. And I think one of the problems that I see sometimes is that because some people have never seen an adult become a Christian, then they don't think adults can become Christians. Or because they haven't seen many people grow in their faith, sometimes they don't expect it in themselves. And so I think when people get excited about going to church again, and we're excited to be uh, coming together as God's people, Jesus there in the midst of us, and that we're hearing from His Word, and we're we, we're um, actively part of the body of Christ, and we're serving. We get excited about that, and we just share that with other people more naturally. I think so. I think I've t- shared the story before that um, I was at a, a, so- a soccer game where my son was playing soccer. <laughs> yeah. That story I'll just tell quickly okay. in case people haven't heard it, but. Um, my, one of my Christian mates who was also a dad was sharing with another dad who's not a Christian and he was just saying, why don't you go to mm. come along with me to church? Now, the other dad went to another local church and while I heard him evangelising our friend, I was praying that our non-Christian friend might think about going to church with my Christian friend. But then what he said was really confronting because the non-Christian turned around to my Christian friend and said, why would I want to go to church? You and Stuart don't even want to go to church. And I went... I looked at my friend, we both looked at each other and my friend said, what do you mean Stuart and I don't want to go to church? He goes, well, every time I say I'm going down the snow, do you guys want to come? Or we go on wakeboarding on Sunday morning, do you want to come? You always say, oh, I'd love to, but I've got to go to church. I'm like, yep, guilty of that. I have said that. (laughs) And I thought, yeah, what are we projecting to unbelieving people? Do do we see the action in the church or do we think the action's in the world? So I think that's actually part of what I'm hearing Tim talk about when he's talking about discipleship, that we're actually excited to be following Jesus. Not all the time. I mean, sometimes we go through really hard times and we're not excited. But if we're never excited and we're only surviving as Christians and, and we don't see a lot of thriving, then I think the world looks at that and goes, what's going on with that? My PT... Uh, is not a Christian, and he he's. I asked him one day, "What do you think? What would be a vision statement for the church? For you? what do you think our vision statement would be as a church?" He goes, "Bible bashing behind closed doors," and I said, "Oh, okay." And I go, "What did you mean behind? Clo-? First of all, Bible bashing. He means that we just preach the Bible and we do." It. I said, "What what about the behind closed doors bit?" And he goes, "Well, I've got a number of people that I train, and you're the only one who talks about." what you do at church when I ask the other people what you do at church they just go oh yeah we just go to church and they're a bit dismissive of it and I was sort of thinking yeah I wonder if we're retreating Mm. into our sacred enclaves and feeling a little bit like the world is changing we're a little bit under threat and we need to 
further you know retreat from the world when maybe we need to put some big glass windows in the front of our church so that people can at least see what we're doing when they drive past you know i mean that's what we talked about um in that last season of evangelism is the 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 barna research said that we we feel almost young people feel well equipped to share, share the bible but they're too concerned to share the bible because yeah. of various cultural factors and one of our staff members karen was saying yesterday she was reading the latest mccrindle research that says that people are still really interested to have conversations with christians about what we believe so i think sometimes we can get the impression from the media that people don't want to know what we believe but i think people are really interested mm. so i think we just also could do really well by being becoming a bit more confident a bit more happy I think that wouldn't be a bad thing. It was interesting when you're talking about that story about um, talking to a couple of uh, non-Christian and, mm. and, a, and a Christian dad and how uh, even just the use of I have is interesting. I once heard someone say that you don't have to say I have to do it. It's like I actually get to do this. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that I find that I've always, I mean, I've, I'm guilty of saying I have to do it. And then I go, now with hearing that, I'm like, actually, I get to go and do this. Like, this yeah. is really, really cool. And I mm. think... Even that shift in your mindset actually helps a lot mm. with like uh, to be really thankful of what you're able to do and, and perhaps that can um, show in the people that you're, you're surrounded by whether they're Christian or not. But um, The reason I bring that up is another re- reason that um, Rainer talks about what might be stopping momentum happening is resistant leaders as well and, and that kind of plays into the fact that it's like some leaders feel like they just have to do what mm. they're doing and, and don't... Uh, um, that fired up about it. I mean, uh, there's a, he, he breaks them down. He says that there's non-breakout churches exhibit, the leaders of those churches exhibit at least one of, uh, as, and as many as three of these, uh, he's, got, he's got seven, I think, six or seven. And he says that some leaders are burned. They've tried to change things, but met resistance and uh, like met resistance and criticism. And they just feel like there's a, it's caused significant pain. They don't want to try again. The leaders um, perhaps ignorant and doesn't have an understanding what to do to lead the church forward. They could just be lazy, <laughs> yep. which is, um, I mean, that's people in it's every job. Yeah. Mm. And it's yeah, people it in is. every job, not just um, yeah. not just a, a church leader. They're theologically weak. They're not strong on their doctrine and what they believe mm. the, the core values of the church should be. They don't want, they want to avoid conflict. They don't want to have to make tough calls. Or they actually uh, thrive off recognition. They're an accolade seeker and they love hearing um, people tell them they're doing a great job. That's a lot of things to kind of get around but i feel like there is the discussion there is about being a humble leader in a lot of those scenarios how does that when you hear all those different things you may even think of people in your life like oh yeah that guy's ignorant (laughs) or that person's (laughs) ignorant which probably is not a helpful way to do it but how would you go about addressing that because it i mean it's quite again can have it's having quite a go at some of the leaders but how would you go about changing it well i, I think i've suffered from all those things I, yeah. I think sometimes i still feel ignorant like i think sometimes what does god want me to do to move forward i feel like quite inadequate to the task and that's where it's important like you said to be humble but one quick thing i'd like to say is i think all those things are so clear that a lot of people could see the you know the dangers in those things one thing i'd like to say is i think network relationships amongst christians and leaders is really important because if you're networked with other people and you're feeling burned you have a group of people that can mm, help you to, you to be supported mm. if you're a conflict avoider and you've gone too far down that i mean it's, that can sometimes come from a good motive you don't want to have fights all the time <laughs> but if you actually find yourself being so worn down by conflict that you're not willing to stand on the day of evil 
and stand up for the gospel, then sometimes it's good to have a friend going, oh, I don't know how you're going with that. Maybe mm. we could talk about that. Or so I coach, coach you through Yeah, coach strategy. you through it. I think mentors and network leaders is really helpful for all those things. And I think there's a little bit uh, – sometimes people feel – I've just got to do this by myself. And it, we were talking at the beginning of the podcast about the Moes in the 1800s. <laughs> and, you know, the, the big creation myth of America is this, you know, individualistic hero kind of, you know, Western hero who takes the law into his own hands. Wyatt Earp is a great example, you know. He, he goes to the gunfight at the OK Corral and the Cowboys shoot some of his family, kill his brother, shoot you know, and wound and maim his elder brother, Virgil. And he decides to step outside of the law and he goes on this big vendetta ride and just goes and kills everyone he thinks was responsible for those things. And he's celebrated as a hero for doing that. So there's this sense of, you know, and you can see it in lots of things. You see it in the Marvel comics. You see it in Batman. You see it in Superman, all these different heroes. There's this real focus on the individual leader, even in Christianity. And I think two things. First of all, a leader is is just another brother and sister in the church who's a shepherd amongst the people. Develop elders and friends within the church, networks of accountability within the church, and also look for mentors and, and friends outside the church to, to just, just have a, a rounded and holistic relational set that can help you through those kind of things. I remember I interviewed you, Stu. You don't have to be wired up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> I wasn't planning to, but that's good. No, no, no. But I remember when um, I had to interview you for a certificate of theology mm. um, and it was about self-care. Mm. And I, one of the things I said to you, what about in terms of your ministry? And mm. you said, never do ministry alone. Always mm. do it as a team. And that's yeah. really stuck with me. I think that's really as important. As much as you can, yeah. Yeah, as yeah. much as you can, of course. But that what you're saying there makes sense. Uh, sometimes the the leader of uh, the entire church might find that a little bit more difficult because they're, they're in so many different mm. things. But mm. I think what you're saying is with the networking, that's almost like that mm. that version of them that for those people. Yeah, so. Francis, Francis Schaeffer said once that every leader is sinful and they need some godly people around them. Mm. So... We have weaknesses. We also have excesses. We ha- we you know we have things that we need help with. So we we really need to not think of ourselves as the you know the superhero mm. who's going to turn the church around mm. and build momentum. I think we help um, facilitate a conversation of faith that helps us to respond to the challenges of what we're facing at the time. Mm. Um, Tim. Uh, I mean, we, we're starting to run out of time here because I didn't realise how long we'd been going for, actually. But um, one of the things that Rainer says, and we'll turn it to more to a positive slant because we talked about a lot of things that probably uh, discourage growth and leading to momentum. But one of the things that Rainer talks about is that a lot of the breakout churches he researched said that there was a, a distinct pattern of struggle which turned into a build-up, which became a breakthrough moment, and then that led to momentum and that created a pathway to continuously uh, success to build on success that's how he describes it i'm wondering though um we like to describe ourselves as a church planning church do you think that church planning is almost trying to create that continuously so when a, obviously when a church plant starts it's in a struggle phase like it mm. and not it might not be a terrible struggle but it is, it's like we're, we're, we're doing a new thing we're trying to grow this church and then hopefully we can build it up and then move to a breakthrough moment because a lot of research that Rainer talks about is um, it didn't, doesn't talk about church planning very much it just talks about one church perhaps expanding and that's why he focused a lot on locations in the last episode that we talked about but I'm wondering 
is that what church planning is doing is creating that opportunities for momentum down the track yeah one of the curiosities i've got about um this pattern that uh, ran has set up the struggle build up breakthrough momentum mm. is whether he sees this as cyclical or whether it is um, linear whether it's like a roller coaster um, whether at yeah moments of momentum whether you're therefore looking out for are you, are you looking out for struggle if it comes or you're intentionally seeking it out uh, are you intentionally um building into your momentum a moment of struggle so that you can then perpetuate the next boost up. I'm just curious whether what he would have to say about that. Um, because as you said, that would be what um, church planning might be an example of that. I'm trying to think if there's any others. It might occur to me later. But it's, it's that you, you feel like you've got a momentum and in that moment of momentum, you're building in something to struggle with. Um, for the sake of not plateauing, not going backwards, but actually, if if this is if this is a necessary step, and this is something he's identified that happens, if in order to get momentum, you need struggle, build up, breakthrough, um, then intentionally looking for those opportunities. So it might be a church plant, it might be a new opportunity, it might be uh, a new mission partner um, in terms of actually taking on board the cares and concerns of a different city country mission partner in a way that actually is going to intentionally stretch your current resources in your church um, because you know that in that struggle of saying hey we're as well as this partnership this partnership this partnership we're also now going to we're going to include this partnership and that's going to create struggle build up breakthrough mm. and then momentum for our sake and for theirs you know there might be a number of different ways of doing that um, so but i mean the short answer to your question is yes i think that church Intentionally budding and sending out um, creates it creates a little bit of a struggle for the remain people um, because they now need to fill some roles and responsibilities because you've taken out some really key mature people from that um, gathering in order to send them off somewhere else. So the the existing remaining gathering needs to continue to raise up. Um, Stuart's talked before about. Um, uh, the rainforest analogy, I can't remember if we talked about it on the podcast, but this idea that you've got different layers of leadership, uh, different you know, growth in a rainforest. You've got the top canopy, you've got the middle length, um, and you've got the ground cover. And you might have trees that are of the same species as the top cover, but they can't grow enough because they don't get the sunlight necessary until one of those um, canopy trees is transplanted um, or falls over and dies, but that's where I think where the analogy falls down. Um, <laughs> but if you, does fall down. Yeah, <laughs> if you if you transport the in your church, falls in the forest, and no one's there to hear it, it really falls down. Yeah. 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 Um, but if we take some you know, canopy level leaders out of one gathering in order to establish a new gathering, then that lets the sunlight through in order for the next layer to to come through. So that that might be so that it creates a struggle there, but it also of course will create a struggle in the new. Um, gathering that you're setting, um, establishing. And so, and one of the things we've worked, tried to wrestle with and work out is how big does that team need to be? Now, there's some um, church planning strategy books out of America that says, oh, you should plant with a, a core team of 70. Um, and we've looked at that and thought, oh, that's, yeah, we're starting with 12. Is that okay? Um, I mean, some of our gatherings, when they get to 70, we're starting to think about, oh, this is going really healthy. I wonder if it's time to bud yet. Mm. Um, but again, I think there's 
there's probably cultural distinctives there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, it, it is struggle. And if that is managed well, and obviously we go back to our prayerful dependence upon God who can do all things, um, then, yeah, we, we do that in faith that uh, these new realities will um, have that build up breakthrough and then the momentum to continue to continue on. Mm. What do you think, Jude? I think church planning is really helpful and it's one way to help to maintain momentum because one thing, uh, I mean, maybe Rainus addressed this and I've missed it, but one of the things that I have a bit of a problem with that approach is it sounds like once you get momentum, you keep momentum. Mm. But my thought is that you have a struggle in a grassroots ministry and then you build a bit of momentum uh, by articulating what you're trying to do a bit better and a few more people join it. But then as lots of people join and it gets momentum, you have to necessarily institutionalise what you're doing so that it's able to be done by more people. So you need systems. And when you put systems in place and the the times keep changing and culture moves on, those systems represent a, a previous era. So the problem with momentum is you get momentum, you get institutionalization, and it creates plateauing. And what you've got to do when there's, uh, you know, you build momentum, you grow, you plateau, and then you start something new, and it goes through the same life cycle as the first iteration. And that's what uh, Weber has identified uh, in his model of institutionalization that, um, yeah, it's a really good model to keep in mind that uh, just because you get momentum doesn't mean you'll always have it yeah. because you'll institutionalise and then you won't be flexible to change when the culture changes again. So we need to build in flexibility into our models. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to, to kind of wrap it up. I mean, the only thing is I just keep thinking of, and this is more in a business context, but a lot of companies um, you know, hit on something and, and become massive, but then yeah. as the culture changes or technology changes, yeah. they end up having... On the being on the on the down unless they decide to create that struggle again. Yeah, yeah. Well, IBM was king, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, who talks about IBM anymore? Mm. So. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think yeah. of Microsoft in that way, is yeah. like they yep. had that huge yeah. increase when right. Windows ninety five became a yep. thing, and then yep. that the personal computing uh, landscape shifted massive. Yep. Facebook was massive, and now it's being overtaken by other social media. Yeah, yep. yep. Blockbuster. Blockbuster. Well, Netflix was able to adjust, wasn't it? And they went online, but now they're struggling because the because they've spent so much money. Yeah, (laughs) and the environment's changed again. So, and Disney Plus has overtaken them in subscribers. There you go. (laughs) Just yes. Yeah. Right. Interesting. There you go. Um, But yeah, it's something to keep in mind. I think it's been really helpful, and I think what I keep reminding myself also, Stu, is something that you said earlier in this season was instead of institutionalizing structures or the way that you do church, institutionalizing relationships yeah so that you can make those changes yeah that's right. i think that's really helpful anyway um thank you thank you have a good time in america thank you, you bro yeah. we'll um we look forward to hearing all the stories when you come back bless- yeah massive blessing yeah really is and thank you to everyone that's listening i was too early i just went one way already oh, a couple of extra up. one ways doesn't we do could, any we could do three <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> but yes thank you to everyone listening Thanks again, of course, to um, Tim and Stu. And um, we'll be back soon with the concluding episode of this season. Not with Stu, because he's off jetting off around tombstone areas. <laughs> <laughs> I just think you're just walking around gravestones. There's, there's, there's Boot Hill. Hill. I'm going to visit Boot Hill. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Enjoy that. Mm. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you really enjoy it. Yeah. The clans and the McClarys are there from being there since the gunfight. Yeah. Righto. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Also, as always, thanks to our producer, Dave, who does all the editing and publishing of this podcast. 
Thank you very much again, guys. And as always, we'll finish with a one-way. 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 One way.